Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Today we have Jonathan Merritt return to the podcast from New York City. For those of you who don't know who Jonathan is, he is a contributor at The Atlantic. He is a contributing editor at the Religious News Services. He's also the author of a handful of books, including his most recent book, which is entitled Learning to Speak God from Scratch. So we'll get to that conversation with Jonathan in just a few minutes. But first, I've got two things. First of all, I've got a rant. And second of all, I've got a mailbag podcast I want to tell you about. So first of all, the rant. Here's the rant. It is actually a hot take of what I think is the biggest problem with American Christianity. And it's that we have forgotten that we are to be more Christian than American. I think the biggest problem with American Christianity is that we are far more American than we are Christian. Because every struggle, every problem, every issue that America has, they seem to have a mere struggle, problem, issue in the church. So our world is so divided. We have lost the ability to disagree with each other. We have lost the ability to see differences of opinion as simply that. Like we have different opinions on how we should go about doing something. And instead, they become dividing lines which separate the good people from the bad people. Where if you are someone who sees things different, you are no longer a neighbor, but you are now the enemy. You are part of the problem. You are part of the the thing that we need to eradicate. That's America. And when you look at the church, it seems to be the exact same thing. We, we do not have any differentiating uh, component when it comes to how we deal with disagreements. We're, we're more American than we are Christian. One of the things you also see in America is there is this weird fascination with celebrity where we have assumed that if you have a big enough following, that must mean that you are a person of wisdom who needs to be listened to. Where we're not asking your character, we're not asking the kind of person you are, we're not asking the kind of work and effort you put in to develop your ideas, but instead we're simply asking how popular you are. Popularity contests determine so much of what we do in America, but also the church looks the same way. Now, I get that um, on the podcast, I've occasionally had people who are just famous on the podcast, like, like I get that, and so I get there's a little bit of egg on my face when I say that. But when we confuse the ability for someone to have a large social media following with the the ability for them to share and articulate meaningful insights about what it means to be a faithful person, we found ourselves being more American than Christian. So uh, the rant for today is, I think the biggest struggle with American Christianity is that we are far more American than we are Christian. So I want you to take a second, take a breath, Take a pause and ask yourself, which identity are you feeding more? Are you feeding more your American or whatever nation that you are aligned with, wherever you're living? Are you doing more to feed that identity? Or are you feeding more your ultimate identity as a citizen of the kingdom of God? Which one are you feeding more? And which one are you leaning into more for the questions about your direction, the direction for your life? Uh, which one are you leaning to to give you more insight into your self-understanding? Which one? Anyway, take a second think about that. So that's the rant. And two, second thing before we get to Jonathan Merritt is I've got a mailbag podcast I'm going to do next week. And so what I want you to do, if you can, shoot me a line, luke at lukenorsworthy.com 
uh, or preferably just send me a message on Instagram and uh, send in your questions. We've, we've done a handful of these, uh, probably do a couple of these every year, and I think it's time to do another one. And so whatever you want to talk about, uh, something which we brought up with a previous guest or something that's never been brought up with any of our guests, uh, let me know. Shoot me a message, like I said, uh, at the old email, luke at lukenorsworthy.com, or go on Instagram, hit me up on there, and uh, send in your questions. And me and I'll probably get a special friend or just a normal friend uh, to help me answer these as I've done in the past. So send those in. I'm going to do it next week. So if you're listening to this, the podcast probably came out on uh, July 5th. Try to get those in the next couple days and I'll record at the end of that week and uh, we'll do another mailbag podcast for you. So uh, that's what we got for you right now. And now here is our guy, Jonathan Merritt. Let's go. All right, friends, welcome back to the show today. We've got a special guest returning to the podcast, Mr. Jonathan Merritt. How are you, friend? I am doing well, as always. It's good to be with you. I haven't been with you in a, in a hot minute. I know. That's why we had to fix this today. We, we needed know. to do this. We had to, we had to rectify that. It's been, it's been at least a pandemic. It has. And that's, that's way too long. Now, obviously, you have a... When's your book come out? The next one? My next book? book? Yeah, are we talking oh, about gosh. that? Please, let's, whatever we do, let's not talk about that because I'm about three years past deadline on that mm-hmm. and I'm afraid that my publisher will hear it and send me a nasty gram. I'll, I'll tell you, if you're listening and you're with Convergent, it's on its way. Don't it's worry. Okay. Coming. But I was going to say, like, I, I didn't want to wait till that because that would have been just too long. And here's the thing. One of the things I try to do with the podcast is help people navigate faith in the modern world. And there's a lot of stuff like going on with like the pop Christian culture. And I, like, I'm not saying you're like the guru for like, pop Christianity, but like, you kind of like, you, that's like, that's your space. Like, I, I don't want to say you're like the, mm, not proud of what I'm going to do here, but like, I'm not saying you're the Perez Hilton of Christianity. Oh, yes. it's, a, it's a little dated. Uh, let's Thanks. go Joel Thanks. McHale. Let's do Joel McHale. Like with I'm the, the Joel McHale. That's my doppelganger. But you know, I think being called the Perez Hilton of your field has always been offensive at any date and time. So I'll just... Just, just consider me offended for all time. Okay, I, I like. I don't know. Like the, uh, I don't stay up with pop culture enough, and that was like a. I don't even know what that guy. Does that guy exist anymore? Like, is he? He does. Okay. He does. He does exist. Is he a New York guy like you? I think he's L.A. Or at least that's his vibe. I don't okay. know. I've never seen him at a at a New York media party. So okay. that's my guess. Okay. That's my guess. Okay. Well, um, there's been a lot going on with the Southern Baptist Convention, and uh, you have. Uh, shared a few words about that. I'm sure uh, Al Muller is the uh, biggest fan of your upcoming book and all your books based on what you wrote about him. Um, yes. So, I, I, like, I want to talk a little bit about the SBC because, uh, like, that's your world. And is it fair to say, oh, backstory, your, your dad was the president of the SBC what, 15 years ago, 20 years ago? Yeah, right. And right. so you grew up in that. That's kind of your world. And I, I don't really, per se, care about the denomination more than any other denomination, but it is the largest one in America, and in some ways, it is um, like it represents a lot of what American Christianity is. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think so. I mean, what what some people don't know is is if you think about the mainline denominations, uh, the the you know the big ones, the I think they call them the Five Sisters, right? You think about Presbyterian Church USA, the the um, Episcopal Communion in in the U- United States. Um, there's the United Methodist Church, the the Lutheran Church, when you put all of them together, they have fewer members than the Southern Baptist Convention. Wow. So if that puts into perspective, I think it is the it is the largest Protestant 
uh, denomination in the United States. And um, that does give them a lot of power numerically. But beyond that, they're super political. And uh, they're always involving themselves in the political process. And as a result, uh, they, they have wielded, at least in the past, a kind of cultural influence or power. Why do you think that they're so politically involved compared to other denominations? Well, I think, you know, look, it's not that other denominations are apolitical, but I think that there's a history in the Southern Baptist Convention that's uniquely partisan. There was an uprising starting in the 1970s that mirrors the rise of the religious right. So you had a lot of folks in, in America with all of the cultural revolutions that were happening in the 1960s. You had, uh, you know, the rise of the gay rights movement, the rise of the feminist movement, the rise of the, you know, the sexual revolution, the rise of uh, environmentalism. And so you had all of these things sort of happening at once. And a lot of, of kind of everyday evangelical Christians felt like the world that they loved was slipping away, and they, they, they had a small window to do something about it. And so evangelicals, who were largely apolitical in American history, with the exception of prohibition and a few other things, they decided to mobilize and to emerge in the public square. So you had the rise of the Christian coalition and the moral majority. And at the same time, you had a, a coalition of theologically and politically conservative Southern Baptists who decided they would take back their denomination, that that would be how they would save America by returning to what they believed was uh, Christian orthodoxy. And as a result, there was a fusing uh, of the SBC and the GOP. And they have sort of um, dovetailed with each other, tracked along uh, with each other over the years. In fact, I wrote a, an article for RNS for Religion News Service, as you mentioned, on Al Mohler, and I talked about this. If you start to to watch it, you see when the when the GOP was litigating uh, abortion, so was the SBC. Mm-hmm. When they were supporting the Iraq War, so was the SBC. Uh, right now, many Republicans are fearful about what's what's called critical race theory, and so is the SBC. And so uh, the SBC and the GOP, since at least the early 1970s, have been um, increasingly one in the same. When you said that uh, other denominations are not apolitical, I would say the tradition I'm coming, like I come from, ha- has never really had this sort of like vocal hand-in-hand connection to either party. And like that's part of like the Anabaptist influence in the Churches of Christ, where there hasn't been like you know there aren't flags in our worship areas. We don't have like people. Obviously, part of it is because we're a fraction of the size of the SBC, and so to like compare that would be probably a little bit unfair because it's not like anyone has the sort of like political capital that the SBC, especially the president or other like major uh, like large church pastors have. But we, like, we don't have that. And so when I see a tradition that really does have that, I'm trying to figure out, like, how, how did that happen? Like, did, did people just assume all along, hey, this is the right way to put, like, the gospel into practice? And they're, like, they see this as part of their sort of, like, uh, like Christian responsibility to be, like, good neighbors? Yeah, I think, I think that, um, you know, I don't think that they believe that Christianity is necessarily partisan. I think one thing that a lot of theologians would say is that, following Jesus is political because it's public facing. It has public implications. You know, this idea that it can just be me and Jesus um, doesn't always work when you start to say, what does it mean to love my neighbor? 
in a moment when there's racial discrimination or Mm -hmm. unjust wars, uh, torture, things that, that there are violations to human dignity, that there's a political implication. What, what happens is, is that it takes that, that half turn and it becomes partisan. And so, for example, when Bill Clinton in the 1990s was getting ready to fight out his budget, uh, fight out for his budget in, in Congress, there were liberal denominations who sent prominent leaders to pray for him that he would be successful in pushing his budget. In the same way you had with Donald Trump conservatives. I'm here recording from an Episcopal seminary. Uh, in New York City. I happen to, to live at Episcopal Seminary, and they have Black Lives Matter flags um, hanging um, on the gates of the seminary and trans flags and, and rainbow flags for pride. So, so there's a political element on the left as well. You know, we, the, the religious right is so much larger that they take up a lot in, in our public imaginations. But the truth is, is that um, the, the religious left is often equally partisan. Yeah. I mean, no, no one was really pushing back when Obama was saying uh, a, a campaign built around the, the slogan of hope. Like, like that's latent with Christianity, like faith, hope, and love. Like, that's central to it. And the ability of the left to just coincide with, oh, okay, that's okay, and we do have a lot of hope. Like, there is the same sort of stuff on the left. I think, like you said, though, it's it's a smaller percentage of people, and so it doesn't seem as loud, but it's just as prevalent. And yeah, that's right. what, what I think we're seeing a lot of, especially those who grew up uh, evangelical, and then they're now like ex-evangelical, or whatever you want to call them. But they just migrate to the left, and you bring the same sort of mentality of let's let's go all in on the political party. Uh, now it's just a different one, but it's still the, playing the same game. Yeah, I, I I think that's exactly right. You know, it's almost a, a worn out trope now that the idea that the the right doesn't hasn't cornered the market on fundamentalism is true. Um, you know, the, the idea of classical liberalism has, has largely died. It's, um, it's often what we call progressivism is often just as fundamentalist in its structures and its operations as it used to be. And I'll say something that's probably controversial, but the idea of cancel culture, which is, I think, I think we're going to look back in 20 years and either laugh or cry. Um, the, the, the idea that we're canceling people the way that we're canceling people is ridiculous. And I'm not just saying that as a white person, I'm saying, I talk to a lot of people who are not men, who are not white, who are academics, who are thoughtful, who say, yes, it's, it's ethically problematic, but the left engaging in cancel culture is just, um, a, a redeployment of what the religious right did for, uh, generations you had uh, in when I was growing up, you know, you couldn't watch Ellen. You couldn't, uh, you know, you couldn't be a part of of anything that that was um, outside of the bounds of acceptability. And if anyone stepped outside of the bounds of acceptability, whether you were Amy Grant or Ray Boltz, or you were somebody who just came out and endorsed the other party, you were often canceled. The books that you wrote. Um, you know, paging Rob Bell. Uh, the books that you wrote were banned from bookshelves and bookstores. And so cancel culture, which was pioneered by the religious right, was carried forth oftentimes by people who were raised in conservative Christianity, defected to liberal Christianity or liberal post-Christianity, but they took the exact same frameworks, the exact same weapons of warfare with them, and simply deployed them in the opposite direction. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's uh, that's totally fair. And one of the most cancerous parts of cancel culture that is so antithetical to Christianity is that there is no room for grace and growth and transformation. We we want to canonize someone, the worst thing they said 10 years ago all of a sudden becomes exactly what they think now, and there's no room for progress or growth or maturity. And so all of a sudden what we're doing now is just getting rid of the ability for people to grow. And that's that's super problematic. Right. Yeah, I think that I think you're right. Okay, so we uh, you mentioned the SBC, like they're all the same issues that the GOP is talking about. They're happening in the SBC and CRT, Trump, uh, like all that stuff is front and center for what's going on there. Obviously, another thing that's pretty front and center is uh, sex abuse. And one of the things that I think I mentioned this on the podcast a couple of weeks ago is it says a lot about an organization when you see the people who they allow to leave. The people that you let leave say a lot about who really matters. And when we see Russell Moore and Beth Moore, who I recently found out they actually are not married. And so I need to apologize for that, even though (laughs) same last name, how could that be? Um, Mm -hmm. That they both leave and they would both attribute to the sex abuse scandal. And when I look at the SPC, I was just talking to some friends about this yesterday. It, It doesn't, makes sense to me because we don't have a denominational headquarters that can kind of like oversee and forgive and pardon and move on and all that kind of stuff. Everything's autonomous where I am. Uh, But explain to us kind of what's going on with the SBC because it seems like this is a pretty black and white issue. Like there's sex abuse. Let's talk about it. Let's deal with it. But that's not happening. Well, you know, right now the SBC is going through to some degree, not, and, and there are big, big differences. So I'm not conflating the two, but they're going through uh, what uh, the Catholic Church went through, that, that um, there is a constant uncovering, and has been, of practices within the SBC um, of allowing powerful men who have uh, engaged in sexually abusive and predatory behaviors to continue to to serve in the denomination. Now, where it's different and where it gets really, really tricky is um, the the Southern Baptist Convention, and this is just sort of very Baptist in general, is a voluntary gathering of autonomous churches. In fact, the truth is, is that the Southern Baptist Convention does not technically exist except for a couple of days a year when the convention is called to order at their annual gathering. Right now, in in reality, there is no Southern Baptist Convention um, that doesn't actually exist. It's a voluntary gathering of autonomous churches, so no one can claim to speak for all Southern Baptists. Um, There isn't a spokesperson. There isn't technically from a polity level. And the Southern Baptist Convention, the leaders of the Southern Baptist Convention, can't actually tell their churches to do anything. So they can't regulate them. They don't, they don't own their property. They don't appoint their pastors. Those churches have voluntarily joined, and they remain autonomous in control of their, denom- of their, of their own congregations. Explain then the function of having a president of a non-existent denomination. Well, technically that that president serves in two roles. One, he can he 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 can be someone that you can go to and ask questions. And you you would hope that he would be able to speak about what the Southern Baptist Convention has done. So he could point you back to resolutions, he could talk about those sorts of things. He also can be a leader for congregations. Um, and I say he because it's the Southern Baptist Convention, so it's almost always going to be a he uh, for the foreseeable future. 
Um, it, it is, it, it's his role to encourage churches, encourage missionaries, um, to, to sort of serve as a, a lead pastor for the organizations and to make sure, because it usually is a pastor, that churches always remain front and center and it's not a, a bureaucratic operation. The Southern Baptist Convention's president continues to keep his job as a pastor. He, it is an unpaid position. Uh, the most important function is that uh, he nominates individuals to be considered for committees, uh, for agencies, and for the boards of uh, governing boards of agencies. And so, in that way, he can shape the ways in which those agencies, the seminaries, Lifeway Christian Resources, Guideposts, the International Mission Board, the North American Mission Board, Broadman and Holman Publishers, all of the entities that the Southern Baptist Convention holds and owns, um, he, he is the one who starts the nomination process for those boards. So over two years or four years or however long, if a particular way of governing is represented by the president, you can actually change uh, the ways in which these large institutions operate. And in that way, it can be a very influential role. Mm-hmm. And so when we talk about the sex abuse uh, issues, there was a committee that was put together, I guess, by the president, and they were to oversee uh, like the inquiry into what took place. Is that right? Well, there's a there's a committee that's based in Nashville at the headquarters of the SBC that's called the Executive Committee. From a constitutional standpoint, they are the secretary and treasury arm of the SBC. Okay. So, you know, that's, that's sort of what they do. And uh, they're the administrative component of the SBC when the SBC is not in session, when it's not meeting. They handle filing taxes and paying bills and all the other things. So the executive committee decided once this report came out by the Houston Chronicle that showed mass um, uh, sexual abuse throughout the SBC, they met and they decided to figure out that they would figure out what they would do. And sort of under the cover of darkness, they met and through a leaked uh, letter, we've learned that there were some things that went on that were purportedly pretty darn shady. And so the Southern Baptist Convention at its annual gathering this year decided that they would vote in favor of an independent investigation of the way that the executive committee, it seems, mishandled the allegations of sexual abuse. There were many churches that were brought up. They were allowed to uh, move on without any kind of censoring, uh, censoring or, um, or being reprimanded or, or being disfellowshipped. And um, people believe that there was a mishandling of that, that it wasn't taken seriously. And the majority of Southern Baptists feel that it, it, it's, it's at least likely, perhaps highly likely, that the people who work, and in particular, people like Ronnie Floyd, who is the CEO, uh, president and CEO of the executive committee, that they mishandled these these uh, sexual abuse allegations. They didn't take them seriously. And if that's the case, I think you'll probably see a lot of transitions uh, among the leaders in Nashville. Mm-hmm. So, you have a denomination that's reflecting the kind of the bigger issues and the conversations that are happening, excuse me, in the culture. And there, there's a lot of debate over how well it was because you have some sides who are saying, no, we handle it right, we do the right thing. And other sides are going, hey, this isn't really representative of what we think the right, right thing is. And so you have this central conversation about um, sex abuse and, and the power and oversight of it. And it, it seems you have a handful of people that have a lot of influence and ability to kind of, uh, you know, legislate and to move things forward on this issue. Is that right? 
I mean, it's, it's yeah. not a, not a ton of people, right? Well, you, 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 they can't, they can't technically make sweeping decisions. Um, only the Southern Baptist Convention can really do that. The, 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 the convention is what is, the Southern Baptist Convention is what happens when messengers converge from the local churches, which include pastors and members who've been elected by their local congregations. The people who gather in that room, they are the sole, um, owners of the SBC and every one of its entities and whatever they say within those two days is what mm-hmm. governs the next year. Gotcha. They have decided that they, they have instructed the leaders that they have appointed to, uh, to appoint a task force to investigate what went on and decide if any action should be taken as a result of the way that this was handled or mishandled. Now what's there, there, there is a within the SBC, just like the GOP, there is a very Trumpian populist uh, splinter group that has risen up, and that group doesn't want to investigate uh, the sex abuse. They they want to condemn um, critical race theory. Uh, they want to uh, they want to enact a kind of way of being Baptist that uh, looks very much like the kind of Trumpist um, arm uh, of the GOP. And they are a sizable group in the denomination. They, they were able to really shake things up this year. And it is likely, uh, or I will say at least possible. I don't know that I could quantify it as likely, but it's possible that that group actually grows in influence and becomes the dominant uh, sort of the, the governing portion of the SBC in the years to come. Right now, they're not narrowly, but they could be very soon. And you could say that because the guy who won wasn't in that faction that you're describing. But just for a point of clarification, would they say they didn't want to investigate it, or would they say that it's already been investigated thoroughly enough? No, um, they they would say that that uh, they looked into it, they made their decisions, and then the executive committee decided that they would investigate themselves. And that, so they also believed apparently that the allegations were bad enough that they needed to be investigated, but they said they would investigate themselves. And the Southern Baptist Convention said, I think rightly, that is ridiculous. Uh, You cannot investigate yourselves. Oh, and by the way, you work for us. And so we want to investigate you externally. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, this, the, that is the kind of rejection of bureaucracy uh, elitism, the establishment that you're seeing happening, you know, in the GOP and the larger political conversation in the U S and it's the, it's a microcosmic expression of that within this denomination. Yeah. So I've, uh, read a little bit about some of the critique of CRT within the Southern Baptist convention. And, uh, from what I'm gathering, your father has done a lot of, uh, he's been vocal about supporting racial conversations and working towards justice and others. And, to speak about justice, it seems like whenever you speak about it, you just get lumped into this group of CRT people. And it seems like, uh, I think Derwin Gray was on a couple of weeks ago, and he said, you know, I've been talking about race for a long time, and I'd never heard of CRT until six months ago. And, you know, I don't know about you, but you know, that's been my experience as well, where you talk about race, like that's clearly a central issue in scripture, Jews, Gentiles, like that's, you know, you, you can't read any of Paul's writings without seeing that being front and center. The idea of justice, you can't read the prophets without it. Now, obviously there are discussions about how we understand systemic sin and what's going on. Yeah, I get that. But the idea of talking about race and talking about justice has been central to Christianity for as long as we've had scriptures. But now it seems like to talk about that has been 
you're clumped into CRT, whether you even know what critical race theory is or not. Well, yeah, that's right. Uh, there is, there is, I, I think that for many, many years, as this conversation has been building, and it certainly reached a peak in the kind of racial reckoning, the COVID era racial reckoning, the kind of second wave of the civil rights movement, Black Lives Matter, um, many white people feel like they are being attacked uh, for being white, uh, that they are being told that they are racist when they don't think that they're racist. And the reason for that is because these conservative white people um, see the world in a, through a very individualistic lens. And so the idea is, is I don't own slaves. I don't believe in segregation. I don't use the N-word. Therefore, I'm not racist. And there are conversations happening about the ways in which racism uh, is perhaps embedded in our legal system, in our social structures, in the language that we use. And um, white people in America are not used to being called to account at this level. And that has created a kind of frustration. And so many white people feel, often they'll talk about things like attacks on Western culture or our way of life, or it sort of slipped in under um, patriotism, that they don't want to have that conversation and they don't want to have it on the terms uh, that are being set for it. But you have to have, I think, in order to fight back in that situation, a boogeyman. You have to have something that is bad. You have to have um, a container, something that you can put in everything that you don't like, and then you say, that's bad. And so there is this thing called critical race theory, which is an academic uh, theory. Most people who don't like critical race theory have never actually read a book on critical race theory. They've maybe read blog posts or articles that have been written by anti-CRT people, but they they couldn't tell you who invented it or where it came from or what the top books are on it. CRT for them is not as much a construct as it is a container. It's a container in which they put all of their anxieties about the the notions that racism could be something that is a part of their lives, even if they're not individualistically acting on them in ways that they consider to be inappropriate or aware of them. And I think in that sense, it's been very, very effective to attack critical race theory from the right. And in fact, if you get in a place like the Southern Baptist Convention and you passed out index cards to every person in there, and you said, write down the definition of critical race theory. Well, you'd get almost as many definition uh, definitions as you have people in the room, and I think that's telling. Yeah, I think you're. Uh, I think you're spot on with the definition that has become a container. It's a catch-all for anything that uh, you know that that you don't have a conversation about. And I, I don't pretend to be an expert in CRT. Uh, I, I don't read a whole lot. I, doesn't it start start with like criminal law, and I don't read a whole lot of. Uh, stuff from our friends who went to law school. That's not really my thing. Um, but what I do know is as a Christian, like you have to talk about race, you have to talk about justice, like it's central to our scriptures. And if you're going to follow the scriptures, then you're talking about that. And uh, unfortunately, like you're saying, like there is a pairing of y- you have political agenda on the right and there's political agenda on the left. And both of them make their way into the church. And all of a sudden now what you have is, okay, I've got 
these flags out here that represent the political causes I'm behind, and then I've got these you know taglines or whatever that I'm behind. And unfortunately, in the middle of it, you have the church that's going, "Wait a minute, this is great for the political system. It's great to you know get more voters and to get people mobilized to vote, but it doesn't do anything for the church. Like it's not helping us move things forward. And what we've believed is like this, this lie of of power and influence that it's going to do something that the kingdom of God has never said we need. And so, yeah, I mean, I. Sure, if you're on the right and this is kind of the way you want to see things, fine. If you're on the left, okay. But as people who are Christians, like there needs to be a higher allegiance that allows us to have differences of opinions on these issues and not divide our churches. When unfortunately, like you're you're talking about, like all of a sudden you're having uh, denominations that, like obviously the SBC represents much of Christianity. That you can see this in any other churches where you have divisions that are popping up because people find these loyalties more compelling than their Christian conviction, and that's what's really destructive for Christianity. Well, I do think what I do think what what has been rightly identified by some people on the right, and um, you know, I don't I don't know that people on the left are as forthcoming about this as as they could be, but there is um, once you begin to see the embedded systemic nature of sin, uh, there is a challenge to the highly individualistic. A Christian theology that arose with the the Second Great Awakening and uh, the the sort of the, the the Whitfields and the Edwards who were sort of traversing the countryside preaching fiery sermons that were saying you know that you need to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and the way that you do that it's an inv- individualistic process your sins plural. Um, are forgiven as an individual. And in other streams of Christianity, the notions of sin are um, often more communal, Mm -hmm. and the notions, therefore, of salvation, whatever that means, uh, are more communal. And that is just not true in evangelicalism. There are individual conversions, conversion moments, where one person does a thing and becomes another thing. And so it's a highly individualistic, you know, knocking knocking on people's doors, handing out tracts. That is one person to one person so that you say a prayer and you become uh, right with God. And when you begin to think about sin, not just as something that I commit, that I need to confess, that I need to invite Jesus in my heart to take care of, but as bigger and broader than that, that is a giant pool of brokenness uh, that is often pervasive in our systems, in our laws, in the ways in which our communities interact with each other, then I, I think some conservatives begin to go, oh, yeah, that, that is right. If we keep following, if you keep pulling that thread, we may have to have really hard conversations uh, about one of the core doctrines of evangelicalism, which is evangelism, uh, conversionism, which is a bedrock of evangelicalism. And so I think many people do rightly understand that as we begin to see the systemic nature of sin, it does have implications for uh, Christian theology. And people who are in the, they're stuck in the construction phase, to borrow from Richard Rohr, they say, the way that I do theology is the right way, it's the only way, and all we need to do is protect that way of doing theology. Don't question it, don't doubt it, don't challenge it, uh, don't bring new information to bear on it. The way that we understand these Christian doctrines are timeless and universal and shouldn't be touched, uh, then I think that they are right 
that yeah. there is a clear and present danger to that theology when you begin to rethink a core doctrine like sin. Yeah. No. No, I think there's uh, a lot of truth right there. And uh, you know, we see this as representing um, you know, a, a lot of what's going on. And um, yeah. Hey, I, I want to shift gears. Um, I started listening to the uh, Christian Today podcast about Mars Hill. I think it's called Who Killed Mars Hill or whatever, some title like that. It's about the uh, Mark Driscoll Mars Hill, not the Rob Bell Mar- Mars Hill, which um, right. I-, I would like a compare and contrast of who picked the name first. Like, I feel like that's a, a story that has not been told that I would like to know the final answer of. But um, again, no one's writing that story, but nevertheless. Um, so it's a fascinating story about... Uh, what happened with uh, Mark Driscoll. And in the same way that the SBC is representative of a lot of American Christianity, I think what you see with the Mark Driscoll story is um, uh, a lot of the fascination with especially like new emerging types of Christianity churches. And in some ways, like that's the story of, of, of a lot of churches, but this was the one on steroids. And this is the story that became the biggest because in some ways that church is one of the fastest growing and biggest churches there was. And there was an interesting line that Ed Stetzer had. He was reported in there. And he talked about in the internet age, we have the ability to elevate uh, based on someone's talent and we don't have time for that talent to be uh, paired with character. Because if you have a strong speaking ability, if you're charismatic and you're in the right place at the right time, all of a sudden you can have the sort of Mark Driscoll meteoric rise to influence and celebrity and fame. And then all of a sudden what we find is that uh, celebrity equals wisdom these days in the way that many people uh, like view others. So if you have a lot of followers, if a lot of people are listening to what you're doing, therefore that you must have a lot of wisdom. And what we're finding with the story is um, wisdom and, uh, and, and celebrity are not the same thing. But it seems like the church, in the same way that uh, the GOP represents part of like the Southern Baptist Convention, that like sort of like especially like the new church culture of um, like the cool hit, the preachers and sneakers guys, they represent a lot of ways the way that our culture adores celebrities. And if you have enough style, then that can overcome for a lack of substance because in some ways style is more suitable uh, for modern palettes than substance. And uh, so I'm reading the story going how. How do you think we got to this point where celebrity equals wisdom and being an influencer means that you have depth and maturity? What, what do you think about that? You know, I think that American evangelical Christianity is a phrase um, in descending order. In other words, yep. it is mostly American. Um, it, the, the language of consumerism is co-opted. Uh, you invest in your friends. You know, yeah. it's it, invest. It, that's a financial term that's been reassigned. Um, we we um, we use the language of capitalism that we judge how successful something is by how big it is. Why is that not a judge of how terrible something is? I mean, who is to say that bigger is better, not bigger is worse, right? But that's an unchallenged assumption that we think uh, is Mark Driscoll more successful. Because he has a bigger church, or is he less successful? I mean, for some, it, the question almost sounds ridiculous, but there's no like immutable cosmic law yeah. that says a bigger church is more successful than a smaller church, that selling more books is preferable to selling fewer books, 
right? These are, these are unchallenged assumptions that have been sewn into the fabric of American evangelical Christianity. So I think that we oftentimes have these kinds of American ideals. Mm-hmm. And um, one of those is that somebody who is talented is better than somebody who is not talented. Somebody who is charismatic will make a better pastor than somebody who is not charismatic. So I would say, you know, I, th- I like Stetzer. I think Stetzer's right. I think we do oftentimes, we are able in the digital age to promote somebody who's very talented uh, and, not, and not pair that with character. But the question is, is why has talent become a part of the equation? Uh, there's an, and so I challenge, I challenge even the, the, the assumptions, the presuppositions. There was a book written in the 1960s by a guy named Richard Hofstadter uh, called Anti-Intellectualism in American Life. And in it, he talks about a transformation that was occurring in American clergy at that point in the 1960s. And I would say he was a prophetic in this way, that American clergy were often thought about as um, educators, public educators, as public intellectuals. And that there was a transformation coming um, that was already starting where instead they were kind of hyper-practical commentators on the issues of the day. That they were just sort of helping you understand in the moment how your faith could translate in the moment. So it was very like culturally conversant. It was, uh, uh, on, it was obviously very, quote, relevant or becoming more relevant. And as a result, the idea that um, a clergyman or woman uh, would be this sort of educator or teacher or widely read um, in public intellectual, um, there was no more space for that. And uh, so I think that there's something going on. Because if you think about it, think about Catholicism. You don't have Mark Driscoll in Catholicism. You don't have these, like, uh, these sort of um, guys who build their own um, fiefdoms. And they are the kind of celebrity leaders. It doesn't mean that there aren't people who are more or less popular um, in Roman Catholic life. But the thing that we're talking about is, I think, uniquely evangelical, because evangelicalism is uniquely American. And Roman Catholicism, it's right there in the name, is not uh, uniquely American. Now, there are forms of, of Roman Catholicism that are more American, which is why you have fights between the U.S. Council of Catholic Bishops sometimes and the Vatican. You've got some differences in, in the American sort of school of Catholicism. But it's very, very different. Uh, that the kinds of things that we have taught that we are talking about are not just unique to the digital age. Yep. Because you've got the internet in Roman Catholic life, you know, but you don't have Mark Driscoll's, and why not? And I, I do think that it is it is unique to American evangelicalism because American evangelicalism has always been highly pragmatic. Yeah. And uh, not not ideological. No, I, th- I think you see the elevation of being pragmatic over what is ideological true or like Christ-like when you hear the refrain that, well, there's a lot of fruit, therefore it's okay. So we will overlook character flaws because the fruit is worth it. And when we say fruit, we mean kind of sort of like standard American metrics for success, which is attendance, butts and seats, how much money we have. And so what we do... We, I think you said so well, is uh, American evangelical Christianity, like the first word is the one that matters the most. And I feel like 
maybe you told me or someone else who knows a lot more about writing than me, whenever you use an adverb, it's typically a sign of weak writing because the verb doesn't say enough on its own. And it seems that when you think the word Christian needs an adjective before it, you've made Christianity a weak word that doesn't say enough on its own that you have to say, well, I'm an American liberal Christian or I'm an American conservative Christian because you don't think Christian itself is a large enough phrase. So what we end up doing is letting those other words define more about what we do than, um, than the main one. Now, I, I critique celebrity culture, but um, I had someone from Destiny's Child on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. So I feel like, uh, like I'm a little bit uh, hypocritical and I think to operate in the spaces where, like, my, my main work is being a pastor, but my secondary hustle, podcaster, writer stuff, like, celebrity culture is part of publishing, it's part of podcasting, and it's there, and you have to navigate it, and you can't pretend like I'm just some Amish person off by myself in Pennsylvania, just, like, ignoring, you know, the rest of the world, because, like, celebrity and influences, it's part of our culture. Like, that's... um that that's how we're wired. And so in some ways we have to have the gospel to, to help us re-navigate something that uh, we have gone far too easily down the stream with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, look, I think you're making um, an interesting point and the idea of modifying Christianity. But one thing that I've started to, th- and I, and if you had asked me that two years ago, I would have just said amen and moved on. However, uh, when people are engaging in an insurrection in the national in, in, in the national mall and they are marching on the Capitol and they are threatening to execute the Speaker of the House and the Vice President of the United States with signs uh, that use the name of Jesus and Christian language and the symbol of the cross, um, we can no longer speak of Christianity. Uh, we have to speak of Christianities, and uh, because it is so far afield from whatever mm-hmm. it is that I'm practicing, that to use the same word to describe those two things becomes nonsensical. And so I, be- I believe we're in an era now where uh, to put adjectives on to, to the word Christianity may be necessary uh, for differentiating the thing from a bunch of other things that are using the same word. Um, the problem is, is that whenever you seek to clarify this, right, you seek to clarify it with an adjective, there are downsides to that. And you've mentioned what the downside is to that. Uh, but I would say, to, to, to take it a step further, the real downside is not just that we, that, that we will overemphasize the adjective, it's that we, we actually change parts of speech. In other words, where you're no longer an American Christian, you're a Christian American. That Christian is the thing that's modifying that's good. the noun, which is American. No. So the real danger is not that we, would, that we would look around the room and realize that a bunch of people are using the same word to describe themselves and that it, it has now become imperative to differentiate ourselves from other people who are using the same word but are not at all like us. In fact, we would say uh, are mutually exclusive uh, with the kind of thing we're being. It's that we would reverse it that we would become a Christian liberal or a Christian conservative or a Christian feminist or a Christian American or a Christian patriot or whatever, a Christian Republican, whatever that thing is. Uh, it's that we would actually have a role reversal where Christian becomes 
the 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 adjective, and I think that's the that is probably the the most dangerous term. Hmm. I definitely need. I definitely think many of us need to learn how to speak God from scratch. That we've picked up too much uh, modern vernacular, and we've let that be the uh, dominant dominant way that we understand and communicate what we are. Um, that's his, he's got a book. It's titled yeah, that. I liked it. That was good. You, not everybody got that joke, but you yeah. and I did. Well, I saw a little smirk on your face, and so I just want to make sure the listeners knew to go get a book that has that same title. No, I think you're spot on. Like the word, when it's used so much, at what point do you go, uh, man, like we can't salvage this word? And uh, was it, um, I think it was just Hauerwas who said this? Uh, I'm not going to say that. Uh, he, he goes, uh, damn it, just speak Christian or something. Like, uh, where there's just like this this frustration of going, wait a minute, no, just say the Christian words. But then uh-huh. there's another side of it going, well, yeah, but these words mean multiple different things now that I, I need to disassociate myself from what that is. Uh, and so I feel like there's a tension of going, at some point you have to reclaim the words and to hold on to them. But at another point you go, well, if if you're saying it and mean something different than what I'm saying it, then how can we get anywhere unless we acknowledge the, the differentiation that has to take place? I don't know. Yeah. Um, okay, uh, before we get out. Preachers and Sneakers, I know you love it. I remember two, three years ago, you sent a group text to us. Hey, did you guys check out this Instagram feed? At the time, it had just a couple thousand Instagram followers. It's since blown up to a couple hundred thousand. It's got a book out, uh, blah, blah, blah. Um, everyone knows it. Um, how much of Preachers and Sneakers is, in your opinion, just people's ability to take a shot at pastors who they know uh, they don't feel good about what they're doing. And it's almost like, hey, you're big time and this is my chance to kind of knock you down. Because there's a little bit of that um, that I can imagine is in there. How much do you think of, of that is part of the equation? You know, it, it's hard to quantify. What I'll say is this, is, is and you know this is true, um, every light casts a shadow. And so public critique is a good thing. And public critique, when it's done well, can only happen particularly, not just generally, right? So in other words, if we get up and we go, pastors are wearing fancy sneakers, that, you know, nobody's stopping to think about that. That's not leading me to any kind of deep, true, deep reflection. But if I show you an image, which is what all good art has done, I show you something, right? Or or I introduce you to something that forces you or invites you to enter into an attention that raises questions. That's good critique. And so when you see an image of a pastor with $3,000 shoes, juxtaposed to that, the price tag, the cost of that shoe, it's forcing you to see something, to enter into attention that cannot be unseen. And if, if it's done well, it makes you ask questions about it. But what can happen is, is that an invitation to ask a question like that uh, can also become for, particularly for people who are unhealthy, who haven't resolved or, or worked through a process, their spiritual and religious traumas, um, it can become an opportunity for venting, a misdirected anger. So all of a sudden I'm online and I'm bashing Carl Lentz, but I'm really just mad at my pastor growing up right? Because he did some things or said some things that made me angry. And so what I think can happen in spaces like that is what, what you would call in psychology, emotional outsourcing. 
It allows me to process with Carl Lentz something that I don't have the guts to go process with the youth pastor from 11th grade who, you know, made me, you know, shamed me for some sort of misstep. And I think we do see a lot of that. But I would take it a step further and say, and what can we learn from that? What we're learning is, is that a lot of people have been hurt by the church. And a lot of people have, because of a power dynamic, their voices haven't been heard, That'll, that people have done bad things uh, to, to, to their congregants and to people and their followers who may not be their congregants, and that they haven't been held to account for those things. But I don't feel, um, I don't feel a sense of sadness about it. I actually don't even feel bad for those pastors. Um, and it's not because I think they're bad people. It's because I think it's part of the job. Yep. It's, part of the, it's part of the deal. Look, you don't get to go stand up and, 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 and feed your ego preaching to 17,000 people every Sunday, driving a luxury vehicle, making money hand over fist, and then you, you know, call on me to wipe your tears when somebody says something negative to you online. It's part of the deal, bro. And so you know, when somebody comes and says something nasty about me on Twitter, that's part of my job. I get all of the benefits of writing books and traveling and speaking and, and, and doing the things that come with the job. I get all the positive things and I don't get to opt out of the bad things, of the negative things, of the hard things. Yeah. And so, you know what, if, if, if a prominent pastor, if TD Jakes uh, doesn't like people calling him out on his, you know, $6,000 Fendi bomber jacket, um, you can sell insurance. You don't have to do this job. But if you're going to step out and say things in public, then if people step out and say things back to you in public, um, they're not the bad guy, I, I think. Uh, and what I don't see happening on Preachers and Sneakers is I don't see it being mean-spirited. Um, it's not mean. If it were mean, that would be one thing, but it's it's lighthearted. And any time that it, it, it when, when people say, you know, it's dividing the church, well, it's not. I mean, um, it is, it is a shining a light on division that already exists. Yeah. People are not showing up and going, oh, gee whiz, I'd never thought about this until I saw your Instagram account. What they're saying is, finally, there's someone with enough guts to say it out loud. I've already felt it. And so it's exposing divisions, not creating divisions. And I think there's a big, big difference in that. I think that we should expose our divisions because if we don't expose divisions, we can't heal them. And uh, it is a necessary step, I think, to expose them. So that's why I do tell people, yeah, buy the book. Uh, check out the Instagram account because what's happening there is it's, a, it's an imperfect thought experiment that is necessary. And uh, I'm happy that it's that it's happening. I do think it's a necessary conversation. I think it needs. I think it's only just beginning. Yeah. I think it needs to go further more than it has now. Huh. I, I'd say two things. One, it would be one thing if they were taking pictures, like paparazzi pictures, of someone when they're not on stage. It's a different story when you want this out in public, especially these clothing, these pieces of clothing that have like designer labels on top, like the brand name is front and center. You want that to be seen. So it's not talking about like something secret or something. Uh, I mean, not secret's not the right word, but something that you're not trying to flaunt. Like that's a different subject, but you're on the stage. Like that's, it's part of the deal. Second thing, Shane Hips, remember him from uh, Mars Hill yeah. years ago? 
he said something probably seven or eight years ago, and he said that uh, preachers are screens that everyone projects their stuff on. And so on the one hand, uh, there's a lot of conversations that need to happen. But like you also talked about, like the stuff about Carl, it's not about Carl as much as it's about your eleventh grade, your youth pastor when you're in eleventh grade that you never worked out. There's a screen that you're projecting some of that stuff on, and uh, you know for better or worse, that it is what it is. It's part of the job. So um, Jonathan, thank you for the time. We got to get out of here, but uh, it's been too long. Thank you for taking the time to be on the podcast, and uh, I-, I won't let it go this long again. My bad. I, I'd appreciate that. The only the only regret that I have in this conversation is that neither of us, insofar as I know, has gotten canceled from it. No, give us time. We can get canceled still. That was the goal. That, I wanted this. Let's tell. Let's be honest with our with our listeners. My idea for this was an episode called Jonathan and Luke get canceled. Yeah. I expected it to be the series finale of the uh, of newsworthy with Norsworthy, but that's fine. You wanted to go a different direction. You wanted to take the high road and I'm cool. I'm cool. I punched my ticket. I traveled it with you, but I was advocating for the low road and I'm not going to pretend I'm not disappointed. We didn't take it. Well, unfortunately this morning I prayed and I was reminded that love is patient. Love is kind. Love is gentle. And so it worked its way out. So I apologize. I'll try to not pray as much next time we talk and therefore we can go whichever direction <laughs> that you want. Thanks, bro. Thank you so much for having me on Luke. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.